Welcome to Then and Now with Ed Stevens, President of the International Preterist Association. Then and Now is a weekly podcast designed to explore past fulfillment of Bible prophecy in order to equip us for guiding the church in its ongoing reform. And now, with today's message, here's Ed Stevens. Thanks for joining us for another Then and Now podcast, where we study the Bible and history from a full preterist perspective. Last time, we did a little bit of review of the last five years of Jewish and Christian history just before the Jewish war broke out in Judea. We gave a brief list of the most important events that occurred just before the war. This time, we need to start looking at the whole chronology of the Zealot Rebellion and their war against three legions of the Roman army, which lasted for about three and a half or four years from AD 66 down to 70 AD. Before we begin, let's pray to our Heavenly Father, King of glory and Lord of the angelic host, In fear and trembling, like all your servants of old, we ascend the hill of Zion and approach your mercy seat. Though our fleshly eyes cannot see you high and lifted up, yet we know by faith that we are in your most holy presence and that the splendor of your glory fills the heavens. We have hope for an afterlife with you only because of your sovereign work in our hearts to draw us to you and regenerate us, even while we were dead in our sins. As we begin this study of your coming in judgment upon the nation of Israel in AD 70, help us see that all your judgments are righteous and holy, and let it provoke us to live soberly, righteously, and godly in this world below. We pray this in the name of the Lamb who died in our place, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. In the previous session, we reviewed the closing five years of the apostolic period, which saw all the New Testament books finished and the gospel proclaimed throughout the whole Roman world and diaspora, just before the outbreak of the Neuronic persecution in which most of the first century Christians were either killed or fell away from the faith. However, some of those elect saints remained alive until Christ returned at his parousia. In his first epistle, written in late 63, Apostle Peter had warned the saints that it was time for judgment to begin, and that it would begin with the Christians, 1 Peter 4, verse 17. Sure enough, less than a year later, the Neuronic persecution came. But Jesus cut short that great tribulation by his coming to gather his living saints and avenge the martyrs as he poured out his wrath and judgment upon the Jewish persecutors. We noted that the Christians disappeared from the historical landscape just before the war began. We noted that the parousia began right after Passover in AD 66 and was a a three-and-a-half-year visitation of Christ to reward his saints and pour out his wrath upon that generation of unbelieving Jews who crucified him and persecuted his saints. Immediately after the sign of the Son of Man appeared in the sky above Palestine, he sent forth his angels to gather together his elect ones. Then right after they were safely gathered out of harm's way, the Jewish revolt began. In this session, we start looking at that Jewish revolt. 
Our intention is to provide a chronology of the whole war from start to finish, as well as suggest some connections between those events and the end-time prophecies of the Bible, especially in the book of Revelation, as some of you have requested. We will start by taking a look at Eliezer ben Ananias, whom Hegesippus claims was the originator of the war. And as we will discover in future sessions, he was also probably the terminator of the war as well. So he was both the originator and the terminator of the war. And we'll see that as we go through this chronology here together. In April of 66 AD, Yosipan and Hegesippus fill in some of the details about the beginning of the war, which Josephus does not give us. When the Roman procurator Gessius Florus brought his soldiers to Jerusalem to confiscate all the gold from the temple in April of 66, Yosipan writes that there was a brash young man, Eliezer ben Ananias, who blew the shofar. The shofar is a ram's horn. And Eliezer ben Ananias blew the shofar in Jerusalem and rallied the citizens to block the lanes of the city to prevent Gessius Florus and his troops from getting to the temple. Here's what uh, Yosipan has to say about that. Eleazar ben Anani, being a youth and very stout of heart, saw the evil that Florus did among the people. He sounded the shofar, and a band of youths and bandits Men of war gathered around him, and he initiated a battle challenging Florus and the Roman troops. That quote is found in Sefer Yosipan, chapter 59. Hegesippus claims that it was this very same Eliezer who was the originator of the rebellion, as he mentions here in Book 5, chapter 53. Eliezer then seized control of the temple and used it as his fortress in violation of the law from that point forward, as we learn from Josephus' Wars, Book 2, Section 424, as well as in Yosipan, Chapter 61, and Hegesippus, Book 2, Chapter 10, and Book 5, Chapter 1. A few days after this, the angelic armies were seen in the clouds over Palestine, signaling that the Son of Man had arrived to begin his judgment and wrath outpouring. A few months later, Eliezer illegally stopped the daily sacrifices of all Gentiles in August of 66. This was totally unprecedented and lawless in the extreme. Never had Gentile sacrifices and offerings been refused. At the very time God was grafting the Gentiles into his church, the zealots were breaking off all religious ties with the Gentiles. Quite a contrast. Josephus refers to this stoppage of the Gentile sacrifices by Eliezer as the true beginning of our war with the Romans in Wars, Book 2, Section 409. The moderate Jewish leadership and priest all reminded Eliezer that to do such a thing would be to set himself above the law. They demanded that he restore the sacrifices of all Gentiles, but he defiantly refused. Eliezer was the son of Ananias ben Nadibus, 
the former high priest, who had been high priest from A.D. 47 until 58. He was high priest when Second Thessalonians was written, which talks about a man of lawlessness. And he was also still high priest six years later in 58 A.D. at the time of Paul's trial in Jerusalem. And it was Ananias who ordered that Paul be struck on the mouth. And when he was struck on the mouth, Paul predicted, God is about to strike you, you whitewashed wall, and then called Ananias a lawbreaker. As was the father a lawbreaker, so was the son an even worse lawbreaker. Eight years after the trial of Paul, in September of AD 66, Ananias was indeed struck dead by the zealot leader Menachem immediately after which his son, Eliezer, used his own temple soldiers to avenge his father's death by killing Menachem and his soldiers in Jerusalem, again in violation of the law. Surprise, surprise. Thus, Eliezer opposed every other zealot leader and exalted himself above them all, just as we see mentioned about the man of lawlessness in Second Thessalonians chapter 2. At the time of the rebellion, Eleazar was Sagon, or captain of the temple guard, uh, or as Josephus describes it, governor of the temple in Wars, Book 2, Section 409. That was the second highest position in the priesthood, right underneath the high priest. The Sagon was appointed by the high priest and approved by the Sanhedrin. At least two of the sons of Ananias... Eliezer and Ananus had held that office, both of whom were appointed after Ananias had left the high priesthood. This speaks volumes about how much wealth, power, and influence Ananias must have had in order to get two of his sons appointed as Sagon after he was no longer high priest. Josephus verifies just how extremely wealthy and powerful Ananias really was. As Yosipon indicates in chapters 72 and 75, Eliezer was the one who literally sat in the temple controlling all the affairs of the temple priesthood and sacrifices and used the temple as his fortress during nearly the entire war, beginning in April of AD 66 until just before Titus began the siege in AD 70, about three and a half years. Eliezer took it upon himself to make changes in the law and customs that had always been followed since the beginning of their nation. Thus it appears that Eliezer may have been the man of lawlessness that Apostle Paul pointed to in his second letter to the Thessalonians in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 3-9. through 9. Some preterists think that Nero was the man of lawlessness, However, there is not the slightest biblical or historical support for the idea that Nero ever set foot in Judea, Jerusalem, or the temple, nor that he changed the Jewish sacrificial laws, nor that he was slain by the breath of Christ's mouth at the parousia, as it says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 8. Nero committed suicide in AD 68, two years before the end of the war in AD 70. 
Others have suggested John of Giscala as the man of lawlessness, even though he did not get control of the temple until right near the end of the war, after most of the abominations had already been committed in the temple. Nor was John of Giscala slain by the breath of Christ's mouth. Instead, John was taken to Rome, where he was paraded through the streets of Rome during the triumph, and then kept in Roman prison until he died several years later. Very few of the statements in Second Thessalonians 2 can be applied to John. Furthermore, Simon ben Giora, another of the three main zealot leaders, was dragged through the streets in Rome and thrown over the cliff in sacrifice to the Roman gods right after the triumph of Vespasian and Titus. Simon never had control of the temple, so it is impossible to see him as the one who sat in the temple of God, as it says in 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 4. Of the three original zealot leaders, only Eliezer ben Ananias is unaccounted for. Josephus drops all mention of him after the war council in Jerusalem in AD 66, but both Yosipon and Hegesippus state that Eliezer ben Ananias stayed in Jerusalem and maintained control of the temple throughout the whole war until just before the siege of Titus, which occurred in the middle of 70 AD. When John of Giscala broke into the temple with his soldiers and gained control of it in the spring or summer of AD 70, evidently Eliezer took his family and got out of the city through some of the underground tunnels, and then fled to Masada, where he held out until 73 A.D. It is interesting that Josephus mentions the fact that the defenders of Masada, including Eliezer himself, were slain by the hand of their own fellow zealots in a mass suicide pact. Then their bodies were thrown into the blazing fire and burned to ashes there on top of Masada. We will say much more about all that when we get to that part of the history in A.D. 73. However, when viewed through the historical lens of Josephus, Yosipon, and Hegesippus, Eliezer ben Ananias does have a lot of connections with the man of lawlessness as he is described in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 3-9. through 9. If he is the man of lawlessness then the one who restrained him was his own father, Ananias ben Nadibus, who held a tight rein on him until A.D. 66, when Menachem killed Ananias. Eliezer was then freed from all restraint and immediately began to manifest his lawless nature. Well, also, right here in April of 66 A.D., there were several abominations which later on caused the desolation of the city and the temple. Menachem, the zealot, who was either the son or grandson of Judas the Galilean, who was the originator of the fourth philosophy known as the zealot cause, uh, Menachem took his army to Masada and captured it from the Roman garrison there, while Eliezer was using his soldiers to occupy the temple and put a stop to the daily Roman peace offering. Armed bands of zealots were running around Judea and all around Jerusalem at this very time, and even inside Jerusalem as well. 
as we noticed with Eleazar and his Zealot band maintaining control of the temple. By August of 66, there were plenty of armies encompassing Jerusalem, inside and outside, as Jesus predicted in Luke 21, verse 20. Jerusalem was a holy place where such armies ought not to be standing. The Zealot leaders brought their armies right into the temple and camped there where they definitely ought not to be. Josephus, a priest concerned for the sanctity of the temple, was horrified at this abomination. And even more so when the Zealot factions begin killing each other and the priest and the innocent worshipers right there inside the temple. This indeed was a horrific abomination which caused its desolation. The Romans considered it abominable when blood of their own countrymen was shed in their pagan temples, as we note in Wars Book 2, Section 210. Josephus tells how the blood of priests and common people was shed inside the temple in Wars Book 5, Section 11 and following. There are dozens of references in Josephus where this kind of abominable activity is mentioned and lamented by Josephus, and I give a whole list of those here in the lesson outline. We're not going to read them here, but you can get them out of the lesson outline. The Sicarii, which were those short dagger-carrying zealots, the Sicarii murdered in the temple, thus polluting it as well. Josephus even uses the word abomination in reference to Eliezer's murder of the Roman garrison on a Sabbath day of all days. Well, here in April of 66, we see the great tribulation upon the Christians being cut short by the outbreak of the war. The Zealot Rebellion cut short the persecution upon the church in Judea since the Jews now had to turn their attention to preparations for the war and their own survival against Rome. Conditions in Judea and Jerusalem now grew progressively worse by the day. Florus had succeeded in provoking the Jews into open rebellion so that his own perverse activity would appear innocent to Nero by comparison. It is therefore not surprising that some of the priesthood under the leadership of Eliezer shortly afterwards made their break with Rome official by stopping the daily sacrifice or a peace offering for the emperor Nero, as well as the sacrifices of all Gentiles. The removal of 17 talents of imageless gold from the temple treasury had left them little choice. The temple could no longer function normally. They would have to mint new coins, and that meant revolt against Rome. When the Zealots made this decision to revolt, their minting of new coins most likely would have begun soon afterwards. The Zealots intensified their efforts of gathering men, weapons, and finances for the revolt. They urged all their sympathizers throughout Israel and the diaspora to support and join the Zealot cause. So thus they were deceiving the nations to go to war. Compare that with the statements in the book of Revelation about Satan being released to deceive the nations to go to war. Also here in April of 66, Josephus dates the unofficial beginning of the revolt from this very incident with Florus. 
The zealots were provoked to go to war by his attempt to remove all the gold from the temple and to force Nero's coinage to be used instead. The people despised Florus even more than the previous governors, Felix, Festus, and Albinus. Florus urged Cestius Gallus to intervene at this time and crush the rebellion before it gained more momentum. But instead, Cestius merely sent an emissary, Neapolitanus, to inspect the situation and determine how serious it really was. This only bought the zealots more time to fan the flames of revolt even more. Evidently, Cestius did not trust Florus' assessment of the situation, especially since the Jews had also sent their own delegation to Cestius at the same time to complain about Florus. This provocation by Florus happened right around the time of Passover. Josephus says the killing of the 3,600 citizens and residents of Jerusalem occurred on the 16th day of Artemisius, just five days before the angelic armies were seen in the clouds on the 21st day of Artemisius. As we learn in uh, the Book of Wars, uh, Book 2 and also Book 6, the references for that are in the outline here. Right here in April of 66, just a few days after Passover, is when the angelic armies were seen in the clouds. And Josephus tells us that this occurred on Artemisius, the 21st day in that year of AD 66. Josephus says, quote, Besides these signs that, that he had just mentioned just before this, besides these signs, a few days after that feast of Passover in April of 66, on the 21st day of the month Artemisius, which would be late April or early May of 66 A.D., a certain prodigious and incredible phenomena appeared. I suppose the account of it would seem to be a fable, were it not related by those who saw it, and were not the events that followed it of so considerable a nature as to deserve such signals. For before sunsetting, chariots and troops of soldiers in their armor were seen running about among the clouds and surrounding of cities. Now notice here in this quote that Josephus gives the exact day and hour of this angelophany. It was just before sunset on the 21st day of Artemisium. Josephus is following the Macedonian calendar. He's not following the Jewish lunar calendar. Josephus says that there were many eyewitnesses to this event, which means that it was at the mouth of two or more credible first-century witnesses. Josephus did not see this because he had not returned from Rome yet when it happened. So that's why he doesn't give his own eyewitness testimony. But he does record the eyewitness testimony of several others. The fact that he gives very specific historical documentation for it, such as places, dates, and time of day, lends much credibility to it and shows that he had talked to several eyewitnesses and maybe even had some written accounts of it on which to base his record here. It is noteworthy that Tacitus refers to this as an actual occurrence, and no other histories of the destruction of Jerusalem reject it as untrue. Even more important is the matter-of-fact way he handles this angelophany. 
The idea of angels being seen in the clouds does not seem to be at odds with the way Josephus views the God of Israel and the way he relates to and interacts with his creation through theophanies and angelophanies, which is the whole idea of Jewish biblical cosmology. It seems that Josephus is right in line with that as he records this event of the angels being seen in the clouds above Palestine. This event appears to have been the sign that the Son of Man had come with his angels to begin gathering the tares to be burned and gathering his wheat into the barn, as Jesus taught in his parable of the tares in Matthew chapter 13. This is not just coincidental. There is most definitely a connection between this carefully documented angelophany and the prophecies of Jesus. I believe this sighting of the angels in the clouds above Israel was the sign of the coming of the Son of Man that Jesus told them to watch for immediately after the tribulation, which was the Neuronic persecution. And that's, in fact, when this very angelophany occurred, was immediately after the Neuronic persecution. Josephus gives the exact day and hour, a few days after Passover on the 21st day of Artemisius, just before the sunset. This was evidently when Christ began his parousia, presence, in 66 AD, at the time when Josephus says they saw the angelic armies in the clouds. His parousia, his presence to reward and punish, was ongoing after that, until the temple burned. It was a visitation or extended visit instead of a one-day event. And that's the way many of us, and probably most of us, understood the parousia uh, before we became preterist. I know I did. When I was growing up in the Baptist church, I viewed the parousia, or second coming, as a one-day event, a sky-splitting, earth-shattering a universe-collapsing event in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. But that's not what the parousia means. The word parousia in the Greek, of course, is talking about a visitation, an extended visit, uh, which can last days, weeks, months, or even years. This visitation of Jesus began in April of AD 66 when the commander of the host, Jesus himself, the Son of Man, came with his legions of angels to start gathering up the tares, which would be burned after his wheat was safely gathered into his barn. That is, the rapture that he's talking about there in Matthew chapter 13. Well, in June, uh, 50 days after Passover, comes Pentecost, and this is when the priest in the temple heard a multitude of voices in the unseen realm, which shouted in unison, let us depart from here. Notice how Josephus describes this event. Moreover, at that feast, which we call Pentecost, as the priests were going by night into the inner court of the temple, as their custom was, to perform their sacred ministrations, they said that, in the first place, they felt a quaking and heard a great noise. And after that, they heard a sound as of a great multitude saying, Let us remove hence. Now note that Josephus gives us the exact day and hour when this event occurred. On the day of Pentecost, at the hour of the evening sacrifices. Josephus also tells us where it occurred in the Jerusalem temple, 
and who it was who witnessed it, the officiating priest. The Jewish priests testified about what they felt and heard in the temple at night on Pentecost in the year A.D. 66, at the very time when the Zealot War with Rome was about to begin. This transfer of a large multitude from one place to another in the unseen realm seems to have been the resurrection of the dead and the change of the living saints when they were caught up to be with Christ. This event occurred at Pentecost, 50 days after Passover. Notice also that it occurred at night, not during the daytime. That explains why no one noticed the snatching away of the living saints. Anyone who noticed their absence the next day would have merely thought the Christians were arrested in the night and taken away to be killed, or that they had fled away during the night to get away from the persecution. It is worth remembering here that Pentecost was the time of wheat harvest, the time when the heads of wheat were threshed and gathered into the barn. The harvest, or resurrection of the dead and judgment, was at the end of the age. It fits the grain harvest typology as well as the parable of the tares to see the resurrection and rapture as the event that occurred here at Pentecost. Furthermore, Josephus puts this story in the mouths of his fellow priests who were in the temple at the very time these events occurred. He seldom gives this kind of strong eyewitness testimony to confirm his account, especially to the point of giving a date and place and naming his sources as he does here. The fact that he quotes these witnesses and identifies them lends much credence to his story. Out of all the possible eyewitnesses who could be deemed reliable in the first century, the priest in the temple would have to be at the top of the list. Those priests were lawyers, judges, scribes, and teachers of the law. They understood the penalty for false testimony. Some of those priests survived the destruction of Jerusalem and could have easily discredited Josephus' account. Yet as far as we know, this account was never challenged by them but instead verified at the mouth of two or more reliable first-century eyewitnesses, as it demands in Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15. And it was accepted as true by his contemporary historians, such as Tacitus. R.C. Sproul, Sr., calls this particular section of Josephus, and about all these stories about what happened, when they saw the angelic armies in the clouds and the voices they heard in the temple on Pentecost, Arcis Pro calls this particular section of Josephus one of the weirdest passages you ever read in ancient history. In his last day's madness speech at the Ligonier Ministries National Conference in 1999, when quoting this passage in his book, The Last Days According to Jesus, he describes it as a most remarkable record on pages 123 through 127. He notes that this story is corroborated by others in the first century, such as Tacitus, as well as Eusebius, Yosipon, and Hegesippus, who also record this event. As Sproul suggested, this testimony of Josephus lends credence to the idea that there was some kind of coming of Christ associated with the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. Every time a preterist uses something out of Josephus to substantiate first-century fulfillment, futurist critics throw a temper tantrum. 
They first demand that we produce the documentation, and then when we do, they work overtime trying to downplay its significance and ridicule us for using uninspired testimony. Yet when they wish to justify their own unscriptural doctrines of creedalism, sacramentalism, or hierarchicalism, they do not hesitate to quote from the church fathers whom they admit are just as uninspired as Josephus. They want freedom to use uninspired tradition when it helps their cause, but deny that freedom to others. Preterists do not claim that Josephus' accounts are God-breathed or inspired. However, an event does not have to be recorded by an inspired author in order to be true. The story about Julius Caesar being stabbed by two of his best friends is true, but it's not inspired. Moses, Jesus, and the apostles all affirmed that something could be verified as true in a court of law if there were two or more credible eyewitnesses to back it up. This event described by Josephus has that kind of reliable attestation. It could truly have happened, regardless of whether or not the historians recording it were inspired. All we need for historical credibility is testimony at the mouth of two or more reliable eyewitnesses. And we have that here with the numerous priests who witnessed these things in the temple on Pentecost in A.D. 66. Furthermore, we all need to remember that uninspired testimony, even if it is at the mouth of two or more eyewitnesses, can never negate inspired scripture, no matter how well attested it is. Scripture stands supreme, regardless of how much uninspired historical testimony or church tradition is stacked against it. History and tradition can only support and explain Scripture, but can never refute it or discredit it. And this is the way we are using Josephus' testimony, to help support and explain inspired Scripture. This is a valid use of history and tradition. With that in mind, let's examine this story to see if we can understand what really happened and how it might relate to the resurrection and rapture events. Notice that neither the priest nor Josephus offer any explanation of this event. In fact, it seems that none of them understood it. Josephus simply laid out the facts as the priest gave them, and we are left to draw our own conclusions about what took place and how it relates to the end of the age. I believe several details in this story are significant. Number one, the day of occurrence was Pentecost. The hour of occurrence was night. The place of occurrence was the Jerusalem temple. And number four, who witnessed this event was the officiating priest. And number five, what they felt heard and experienced. Now, we're going to look at all five of these factors here in the story. The first two points certainly remind us of Jesus' predictions about the day and the hour of his return, as we find in Matthew 24, verse 36, verse 50, chapter 25, verse 13, also Mark 13, verse 32, and Luke 12, verse 46. Furthermore, this occurred on the pilgrim feast of Pentecost, which was connected with the grain and fruit harvest. 
Passover was a time of the barley harvest in the spring, during which the priest brought an omer of barley flour into the temple courtyard and waved it. That is, they lifted it up and presented it to God. Pentecost, however, which occurred 50 days after Passover, was the time of the wheat harvest in early summer. It was the presentation of the two loaves made of leavened wheat flour, which distinguished this festival. At the time of Pentecost, the wheat harvest had already begun and was nearing completion. The two loaves may have represented the living and the dead. Jesus used the harvest metaphor in his teaching about what would occur at his parousia at the end of the age. A good example of this is the parable of the tares in Matthew chapter 13 where he uses the wheat harvest motif in connection with the angelic gathering of the wheat into his barn at the end of the age. In my article in Fulfill Magazine, the summer of 2011, volume 6, issue 2, I explained how this parable was pointing to the resurrection of the dead out of Hades and the change of the living into their immortal bodies, at which time both groups were gathered together in the unseen realm and presented to Christ at his parousia. John the Baptist also connected the wheat harvest with the end of the age in Matthew chapter 3 verse 12 and Luke chapter 3 verse 17. And Paul used wheat imagery in his seed analogy to illustrate how the resurrection would take place in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verse 37. Therefore, it's going to be no surprise to discover that this event mentioned by Josephus, which occurred at Pentecost, at the time of wheat harvest, might have something to do with the resurrection of the dead out of Hades. When we look at what the priest heard and experienced and felt on this occasion, this connection of Pentecost with the resurrection becomes even more apparent especially when we look at the way the priests described their experience of this event. As Josephus tells us, they said that in the first place they felt a quaking and heard a great noise, and after that they heard the sound of a great multitude saying, Let us remove hence. Notice there were no visuals here. It all involved hearing and feeling. This means that the multitude that the priest heard were invisible. They were in the unseen realm. The priests were only allowed to hear what was said, but not allowed to see those speaking. This raises some very interesting questions. Who were these folks in the unseen realm? From where had this multitude in the unseen realm come? And to where in the unseen realm were they going? The fact that these people existed in the unseen realm significantly limits the possibilities of their identity. What group of people in the unseen realm would be leaving one part of that realm for another part of it, and why? Well, I'll give you a little hint. The disembodied souls of dead saints left Hades and entered heaven. And what does the temple have to do with this transfer from one location to another in the unseen realm? Well, another hint for you. According to Jewish tradition, it was the one place on earth where heaven and earth met. 
It was the gateway to heaven in the unseen realm. Many Jews also believe that the huge rock on which the temple stood was the lid which covered the opening to the Hadean realm. In other words, the temple sat on top of the rock that sealed the gates of Hades, so that if the dead were ever raised out of Hades, they would have to come out through the gates of Hades right there in Jerusalem near the Temple Mount. Furthermore, it is worth remembering that this event occurred on Pentecost, about 45 days after the angelic armies were seen in the clouds a few days after Passover. If the angels were there, then Christ had to be present with them in the unseen realm above. In Matthew chapter 24, verse 31, Jesus said that after his arrival, he would send forth his angels to gather together his elect. This transfer of a large multitude of souls from one place to another in the unseen realm sure sounds like the resurrection of the dead out of Sheol, or Hades, and their entrance into the heavenly realm above. If this was in fact the resurrection, then it was also the very moment in the twinkling of an eye when the living saints were changed into their immortal bodies and caught up together with the resurrected dead to meet Christ in the unseen realm above. For more detailed information about this event, I have created several PDF files which provide other translations of Josephus' account of this event by Greek scholars, as well as the parallel accounts found in Tacitus, Josepon, Hegesippus, and Eusebius. If you would like to have this amazing information, simply email me to request my two articles from the Fulfill magazine on Let Us Remove Hence and more on Let Us Remove Hence, plus all the related charts, notes, and quotes files that are in PDF format. For more information about the resurrection, change, and rapture events, here are some other excellent resources available for order from our website, and they're mentioned here in the lesson outline, so you don't have to write these down. Ian Harding's book, Taken to Heaven in AD 70, is an excellent source for more information about the rapture especially. J. Stuart Russell's book, The Parousia, also talks about the rapture. My lectures and Parker Vall's lectures at the 2011 Garrettsville Seminar deals with the resurrection, change, and rapture events, as well as my books, First Century Events, Expectations Demand a First Century Rapture, and my lesson on the Parable of the Terrors, which is in MP3 audio format, and my Kansas City Seminar speech on the resurrection, change, and rapture is also available as an audio file. And, of course, my Gathering Together of the Elect, which is a Fulfill Magazine article. All of those resources are available on our website or from me personally just by emailing me. Those will help you understand this event that happened here on Pentecost in AD 66, which I believe was the resurrection and the uh, bodily change of the living and then the rapture afterwards. Well, that's about all we needed to cover in this session. We'll start next time with these events in the summer of 66 when the Zealots were making serious preparations for the coming attack of Cestius Gallus with the 12th Legion. 
Several have asked me when I plan on doing a podcast to refute the article in the latest issue of Fulfill Magazine by Brock Hollett. As we noted last time, that article challenged all full preterists to come up with some better answers on the resurrection issue, and I fully intend to meet that challenge. Lord willing, I'm hoping to do that podcast sometime in late April. That should provide all of us with another good explanation of the resurrection from a full preterist viewpoint. Stay tuned for that one. Well, that's going to wrap it up for this session. I appreciate your listening, and we'll talk to you next time. This has been Then and Now with Ed Stevens. We would love to hear from you. Send your email to preterist1 at preterist.org. Our website has many great articles, books, and audio-video resources. The address is www.preterist.org. This teaching ministry depends on your donations, and you share in all the good fruit that we produce. To make a donation or support monthly, simply go to our website, www.preterist.org, or call us at 814-368-6578. Join us again next time for Then and Now, where we study the past to shape a better future.